We begin today with my theatrical debut and swan song. It's kind of a debut swan song sort of thing. And then we turn to the book of Proverbs, which is arguably the most stream of consciousness book in the entire Bible. And then I tell you a shocking detail that may change the way well, you watch TV reruns for the rest of your life. I'm telling you, actually, this one's pretty good. All on the way to answering the question, are the seven deadly sins biblical? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. When I was in high school, I signed up to be in the one, and turned out to be, only theater production of my entire lifetime. It was the musical Camelot, based on, of course, the life and events surrounding the legend of King Arthur and the people of his court. Interestingly, as far as I'm concerned, King Arthur is, well, is almost a secondary character in this story. Every other character is more interesting than he is. Even the evil ones. Okay, maybe especially the evil ones. I'm thinking in particular of Mordred, who is the conniving, backstabbing member of the court, who is the source of so much trouble in this drama. In our school, this role was played by Joey, and I think Joey was the valedictorian of our class. He was obviously really smart, and he was handsome in that kind of Clark Kent, perfectly put-together sort of way. In other words, he was better looking than anybody really ought to have a right to be, and no, I'm not bitter. No, really, I'm not. I'm okay. Uh, Anyway, he was cast to play the evil Mordred, so actually they went against type, didn't they? In the play, he had one particular song called The Seven Deadly Virtues that was both such a great song and also amazingly well-performed by him that I would often try to slip out from behind stage to get in position to watch it performed whenever I could. Ultimately, I can't play the version sung by my high school classmate because, well, I don't even know if there's a recording of it anywhere. So I will have to play a clip from the film version starring Richard Harris as King Arthur and Mordred being played by David Hemmings, who we get to hear sing in this clip. The seven deadly virtues. No thanks you, your majesty. The seven deadly virtues, those ghastly little traps. Oh no, my lord, they were not meant for me. Those seven deadly virtues, they're made for other chaps who love a life for failure and ennui. Take courage. Now there's a sport, an invitation to the state of rigamort, and purity, a noble yen, and very restful every now and then. I find humility means to be hurt. It's not the earth the meek inherit, it's the dirt. It's not the earth the meek inherit, it's the dirt. That's a great line. Now, as much as I enjoyed this song, it also made me aware of something that I don't think I'd been aware of or at least paid attention to before this point. As I watched my classmates sing about the seven deadly virtues, I became aware that the list of seven virtues had been created in reference to the list of seven deadly sins. Now, I don't know where I had been, but I'm pretty sure I'd never heard of the seven deadly sins prior to this point in my life, or if I had, I hadn't paid them any attention, which is probably more likely the case. So the seven deadly virtues was a humorous reference to the seven deadly sins. 
The historical church had talked about these four years, about the seven deadly sins, and in turn also created a corresponding list of virtues. Interestingly, Mordred's seven virtues don't really match up with the church's official list of virtues, but that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Don't you think? I mean, accuracy might be considered some sort of virtue, and Mordred wouldn't want to accidentally stumble into something like that, right? So as our question asks, are the seven deadly sins found in the Bible? Well, the short answer is yes and no, but mostly no. Let's begin with what the seven deadly sins are. They are lust, gluttony, greed, envy, wrath, sloth, and pride. So do these appear as a list anywhere in the Bible? And the answer is no, they don't. There are those who would like to argue that they have their roots in the book of Proverbs. And in the book of Proverbs, there is indeed a list of six or seven, I'll explain that in a minute, things that God hates. So let's turn to the passage that is sometimes cited as the origin of the seven deadly sins, and it's Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. And as I read this passage, I'm going to add some small but I think helpful notes. Primarily, I will also be adding a numerical count as we go through the list, just so you can keep track of them. So here we go. The passage says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Okay, now I'm going to do my timeout thing and give a little bit of information here. The listener may immediately listen to those first two lines and say, well, which is it, six or seven? Are we about to hear a list of six and then get a list of seven, which is what I thought it was going to be the first time I read it? No, we're only going to get a list of seven items. So the general consensus is that when the passage says six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, we are better off understanding it as saying six that he hates and the seventh is an abomination. Now, back to the passage. Remember, I'm adding the numerical count. So one, haughty eyes. Two, a lying tongue. Three, and hands that shed innocent blood. Four, a heart that devises wicked plans. Five, feet that hurry to run to evil. Six, a lying witness who testifies falsely. And seven, this is the big one, supposedly, seven, and one who sows discord in a family. Okay, I'm not going to go one by one into each one of these because it's pretty clear to me, at least, that there isn't enough overlap with the traditional lust, gluttony, greed, envy, wrath, sloth, and pride to really warrant going through them one by one. Okay, so we could claim that the seven deadly sins, though not found as a list in Scripture, are at least scriptural in origin because each of these has a moment of being spoken about in Scripture, which again has some truth to it, but really isn't what the question was, is it? This is actually one of those questions where scholars are pretty clear where this list came from, and it isn't the Bible. Now, let me be clear at this point. I'm not saying that this list, because it isn't found as a list in the Bible, would therefore be contrary to the teaching of scriptures. So, we know amongst ancient Greek philosophers that lists like this were, shall we say, all the rage back in the day. And by back in the day, I mean 300 years before Jesus was even born. Aristotle believed that life was filled with opposing vices and that between them was found a virtue. On one side might be fear and the inability to act in the face of danger or conflict, and that's a vice. On the other end of the spectrum is reckless behavior that doesn't take into account the consequences of action 
Again, another vice. And in between these two is found balance and the virtue of courage. Fast forward about 600 years or so, and there was a group of Christian monks who lived mostly separately from each other over a period of time that we now know collectively as the Desert Fathers. Think of these people as the beginnings of modern-day monasticism, and they lived largely from about 300 to 450. It's one of these, named Evagrius Ponticus, who took the Greek lists as a jumping-off point to create well, his own list. He took a list of nine from the Greek and reduced it to eight. Then that list was translated by another desert father, John Cassian, and it was his translation that really became popular and embedded the list within Western Christian culture. Then in 590, Pope Gregory revised the list from eight to seven, which is now the list most of us know today. What got shopped from the list, you ask? Well, prior to Pope Gregory's revision, sorrow or despondency was on the list. So just think about before Pope Gregory came along, being depressed was considered one of the seven deadly sins. So in his editing, he seemed to be aware of the fact that depression is not a sin, certainly not one of the seven deadly sins and not a sin at all, which is good. Points for him. So why do we hear so much about the seven deadly sins in this day and age if they aren't even biblical? Well, first of all, I want to be clear again. The origin of the list as we know it is not the Bible. That doesn't mean that the list as it exists is in any way contrary to biblical teachings. I would argue that there are two factors, though, that have popularized this list. And one is that it was widely used and taught by the church prior to the Reformation and then still by the Catholic Church afterwards for generations. Many a Catholic child learned this list in preparation for their confirmation. Also, and perhaps equally as powerful, is the work of literature by Dante, entitled, of course, Inferno. In this famous work, Dante describes hell as having levels, or specifically concentric circles, and four of these directly correspond to four of the seven deadly sins. And it is this utilization of the list, or at least a portion of it, in his famous work that has, I think, played a major role in keeping people beyond the Catholic Church aware of this list. And it continues to be used in popular culture. If you happen to watch Shazam, the fairly recent DC movie that came out in 2019, the seven deadly sins are personified by physical demons and are battled by the hero in that movie. I know that's not what you expect out of a comic book movie, is it? As a matter of fact, one of the very popular TV shows of my childhood was supposedly based on the seven deadly sins. In the show, according to the producer who started it, there were seven characters, and each was, at least tangentially, intended to be associated with one of the seven deadly sins. Now, just as a little bit of a teaser here, I'll give you the producer first. The producer was Sherwood Schultz, who gave us other shows like Bob Hope's show, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, The Red Skelton Show, The Brady Bunch. But the show we're talking about here, of course, is... The ship's aground on the shore of this uncharted desert isle With Gilligan, the skipper too A millionaire and his wife The movie star, the professor and Mary Ann Here on Gilligan's Okay, does that blow your mind? Because it totally blew my mind. I did not know that until a couple of days before 
right now. And the first time I heard it, I thought, that is absolutely wild. So according to the man who produced the show, the characters were somewhat based on the seven deadly sins in the TV show, obviously, Gilligan's Island. Now, interestingly, a lot of conservative Christian websites have jumped on this and edited the list a bit. They like to double up, giving two sins to one of the characters, so they manage to have all seven sins represented in six of the characters so that they have Gilligan left over because they want Gilligan to be... Satan. Their point is that he's dressed in red. He keeps them in hell, which is on the island, and he obviously is Satan in this story, which is just a little too far for me. Look, if you have watched this show as much as I have, and maybe I've watched each episode of this show more times than any other show I know of, except maybe the original Star Trek, and I've watched those a lot more, But if you've watched it as much as I have, you will agree that the list of sins may have helped, I don't know, create the characters, filled out the characters at the very beginning conceptual stage of the show when they were trying to decide who was going to be on the island. But that's pretty much the end of where the seven deadly sins drove the show from my experience of watching. But at this point, you're saying, Dan, just tell us who represented what. And so I will. Evidently, the professor is pride. He comes across as a know-it-all, and he is. He is a know-it-all. Thurston Howell III is greed. No explanation necessary if you've ever watched the show. Ginger is lust. That makes sense. She's a movie star obsessed with her looks and always using her looks and her charms to get what she wants from men on the show. Marianne is envy. One's a little more of a stretch. Evidently envious of Ginger's good looks. Mrs. Howell is gluttony, and this is one of the weaker ones for me. It may be argued that I guess her husband was obsessed with amassing wealth, so greed was his, and she was obsessed with using that wealth to surround herself with the finer things in life. One of the people who was explaining this said, gluttony is hers because she's always seen eating, and I'm like, I'd have to go back and watch a lot of episodes. I don't remember Ms. Howell always eating. The skipper is anger or wrath. Okay, I get this one because he is constantly hitting Gilligan over the head with his hat. And then finally, Gilligan is sloth. And this may be the weakest of all for me. This may be more accurate if you're basing it on a different character that Bob Denver played, not in this show. Back in the late 50s, early 60s, there was a show called The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis. And Bob Denver, who went on to play Gilligan, played a character on that show called Maynard G. Krebs, who I think Sloth was very much a part of his character. He was described as kind of the quintessential beatnik, but let's just say Sloth was part of who he was. So maybe Gilligan was going to be more like Maynard G. Krebs when originally conceived as a character, and that's why he was placed into that slot. So we've sort of answered where these came from. Are they found as a list in the Bible? No. But here's the more important question. Do the seven deadly sins have any value for us today? Well, I have a couple of things to say about that. First, let me remind you where they came from. They came from the very early days of monasticism, from the Desert Fathers, who were largely hermits and lived austere and remote lives. They were obsessed with removing themselves from the distractions and messiness of community life found in cities or villages, and they were drawn to the idea of living remote and solitary lives of faithfulness. So first, I would say that to me, this is a list born out of that way of life. And again, for me, therefore, it doesn't have a lot of draw 
Also, if you want to live a life that is faithful to what the God who created you desires, I think it's far more helpful to think of that which we are called to rather than focus on life as trying to avoid certain behaviors. So when Jesus was asked, what's the most important thing? What do we really need to focus on? What was his answer? Well, in the book of Matthew, someone comes up and says, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus is asked the greatest commandment, and he gives two in order of importance, but they are related. First, he says, you got to love God. You just got to love God. And then he says, and the second one is related to the first, and that is love everyone else. Now, before I say that's all for today, Let me make a really important point. I want to take a moment to define love as God defines it, because we have this list and we say, well, at least for me, Dan, that list is not terribly useful. At least for me, what I think is God wants us to be called towards positive behavior. What are those behaviors? Love God and love your neighbor just like God loves you. So now the question comes, what is love? I want to take a moment to define love as God defines it. We live in a building with a swimming pool, my wife and I do, and our granddaughters, our two granddaughters, love to come over and swim. And we recently bought a new swimsuit for the four-year-old for the coming season, and it comes with a little swim shirt and a little swim skirt, both of which have shiny reflective pattern that looks like something you would expect to see on a mermaid, fish scales that shimmer with lots of color. When we put the suit on her for the first time, she stopped and got very quiet and still for just a second. And then, as she moved her hand over the shiny scales, she said very seriously, I love this. And that's the way we use the word love today. We normally use the word love to mean something that gives us joy, that we really like. It can be a person, place, experience, or thing, but love is normally meant as the word we use it today, to describe a warm, wonderful feeling that's elicited by something or someone else. And that's not what God means by the word. Let's look at what is arguably the most quoted passage from Scripture in modern history, at least. And that is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Now, in this use, the word love has nothing or very little to do with warm, comfortable, squishy, happy thoughts. It does not mean that God looked down on us and had great affection for us and then decided to do stuff for us. In this case, the word love means a decision to be in relationship. When we see God show love throughout the scripture, it's always about a conscious choice to enter into a relationship with people and then stay in relationship with them no matter what. So when Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor, he means choose to be in relationship with your neighbor as God has chosen to be in relationship with you. Not not because they have earned it, but because they are a child of God and deserve no less from you, no matter what. That's all for today. If you have a question for me or a response to this podcast, then send me an email. I would love to hear from you. 
My email is dan at skypilot, S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T dot zone. That's dan at skypilot dot zone. And on your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot Faith Quest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. <laughs>